Introducing Bluehost Cloud, ultra-fast WordPress hosting with 100% uptime. Want a website with unmatched power, speed, and control? Of course you do. And now you can have all three with Bluehost Cloud, the new web hosting plan from Bluehost. With 100% uptime and incredibly speedy load times, your WordPress websites will be dependable and lightning fast on a global scale. Plus, your sites can handle even the biggest traffic spikes without going down or lagging. And with Bluehost Cloud, you get 24-7 WordPress priority support, meaning you're connected to WordPress experts anytime you need them. Not to mention, you automatically get daily backups and world-class security. So, what are you waiting for? Get Bluehost Cloud today by visiting bluehost.com. That's bluehost.com. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y dot These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. He wooed many other women, including Ghislaine. She was widowed, lonely, and unhappy. This is the first time she has spoken publicly about how she was wooed by one of his signature cons. How did you come to meet him? Um, parce que j'ai mis une annonce dans un journal fort connu en Belgique pour les rencontres et il a répondu très très bien une lettre en excellent français sans faute et vraiment intéressante. What did he tell you the plan was? Uh, married in Bali. Married in Bali. Yes. Okay, so leave here, sell up, go to Australia via Bali, get married in Bali, and then get back to Australia. And yes. settle in Australia. Yes. As husband and wife. Yes. The modus operandi is always the same. He always preys on vulnerable, lonely women, usually widows or someone looking for love. He is very clever with the way that he, he preys on them. He knows what they want to hear. Did he tell you that he loved you? Oh, yes. Oh, yes. It's a, it's a method that he has used with every single one of them. He just tells them to start a new life. It's at a time in their life, start a new life. Come on, sell up your house, sell your car, give me your money and I'll buy a house, whatever exotic location, whether it be Bali or the south of France or Luxembourg, which it was for Marion. He gave them the fantasy. Basically, he uses these fantasies about this uh, happy place far, far away and it's a two-way road. It's not just Australia to Europe, but it's also the other way around. This is a photo of Ghislaine with her children, the day she told them she was leaving for Bali to begin a new life with a new man. But the trip never happened. He and the funds she'd sent him 
to buy their dream home abroad simply vanished. It took all my money. Ghislaine, can I ask you? Yes. How much has this cost? How many dollars? Oh, dollars I can say. But, but fair to say it has cost you around at least 300,000 euros. It may, it may be more. Maybe may more. Be, I need it, that money now. I understand. Ghislaine even sold her home to further fund the man who'd stolen her heart and most of her money. But the house sale was the final straw for her son, who persuaded Ghislaine not to hand over the proceeds to the man who called himself Frederick de Hedeveri. And when Frederick understood that, he was away. And that's when he abandoned you? Yes, absolutely. Lovely listeners, and welcome back to Crime Analyst and the Intelligence Cell. Once again, I'm rejoined by Joni. We have a lot more to dissect and deconstruct regarding Marion's disappearance and the other women's accounts play a critical role. They provide unique insight into Mr. Rick Bloom and his behaviour. And remember, it was he who put himself on Marion's timeline And it was also Mr. Rick Bloom who said that he had had a sexual relationship with Marion, although he would later contest the word relationship at court. The clip you just heard at the top of the episode was Ghislaine speaking out for the first time. And yes, I was testing your French speaking and comprehension skills there. Some of you might be a little bit rusty, so let me help you out. Ghislaine said that she met Mr. Rick Bloom when she placed an ad in a popular newspaper in Belgium and he answered her ad. She said that his letter was perfect in French, without mistakes, and that it was a very interesting letter. Now, of course, you heard the rest. Mr. Rick Bloom's false promises of a new life, the fact that he took her money and failed to show up at a family dinner that had been pre-arranged. He just disappeared with her life savings. It seems to be a familiar pattern, And I just wanted you to hear her voice and how it impacted her. So in the last episode, we left off talking about Ghislaine and the fact that Mr. Rick Bloom contested her account. And I shared that that was his opinion, but it's not fact. Okay, we have a lot more to unpack and analyse, so let's dive back in. And I think that that's, you know, the obfuscation and the, the nonsense of his evidence, it's so problematic, you know, him being so well-versed in the Hotel Nico in Japan, and he can remember that, and he can remember the flight, but yet other things just seem to escape his memory that he tries to rely on his, you know, PMS, as I call it, poor me syndrome of how, you know, his memory's fading, etc. but yet other things he remembers very clearly. But multiple women have proven that he is a liar and a pathological liar. And that is a fact. And his callous disregard for them has also been shown. And I think that's an important characteristic when thinking about his behaviour and how he's 
done what he's done. And and Ghislaine actually said that she was going to give the money to her son to buy a house in France. And that's and she had told the children about him and he didn't attend the dinner. Yes. Well, Ghislaine actually reported him as a missing person. That's right. That was her first interaction with police was at her local station reporting him as a missing person. And they get a phone call back saying, no, no, he's been sighted in Amsterdam and he's on his way back to Australia now. Well, firstly, her reporting him as a missing person shows just how invested she was, that she really believed that he would meet the children and that something terrible must have happened to him. That's how good he is at what he does. So she, in earnest, reports him as a missing person and they say, oh, no, you know, he's nicked off with all your stuff to Amsterdam, not knowing what he's done, but he's in Amsterdam. But we get the Amsterdam connection again, which is important. It's come up multiple times. Yes, it is very important within the whole scope of of the series of events dating back to the 70s. So Amsterdam is very much a very important location within the whole timeline because it's an entry and exit yeah, that he uses. And we we know that. And with Janet Oldenburg, Amsterdam came up. And, and also the point that Ghislaine said that he wanted her to keep it a secret from her children, but she insisted on telling them. Now, I'm curious about that, him pressuring her not to say something. Was that something that happened with Marion? It's a question that we have to think about that Ghislaine pushed back and did tell them, but it was really at last minute them finding out. She'd kept it secret for some time, and I think that that's also just worth pointing out. Yes, it is. And the same with um, Janet Oldenburg too. So we've been able to confirm um, just from external family connections that it was at the time, it wasn't actually announced as such. It was... Um, sort of thought of to have been Janet's secret, you know, the fact that she was with this man and that she was to go overseas with him. She was in the same situation as well for a time until she decided that she wanted to tell her sons. So the secret part, I mean, when you ask someone to keep a secret, what you're really doing is isolating them. You know, you're forcing them to hold on to something that they can't share and therefore you're burdening them with something that they can't share And for what purpose is that? I mean, for me, I always think, you know, secrets are a heavy burden when you can't share something because everything about human connection is about our sharing and sharing experiences. So what you're really doing is shrinking someone's world. And and that, Joni, is, you know, that's another element of coercive control, that isolating aspect. And Rick Bloom is somebody who's very well versed in that. And as I always say, coercive control has many different tentacles you know, and when we think about the spider's web, some things are visible, some things are invisible. But once you start asking questions, you start to understand a lot more. I mean, he did take quite a significant amount of money from her and he also opened up a safe custody service, didn't he? Another bank account. What was he expecting to put into that? His passenger card shows him bringing money back in. That's obviously available. It was raised in court. So, you know, he ticked the box that he he brought back over $10,000 Australian coming back in from Singulane. So he certainly did bring money back. Where that was from, 
is the question. But, I mean, I've spoken to two coin dealers in Amsterdam that were he was a client of for many years. He would go there and exchange cash for coins and coins for cash and sell, buy and sell. And he actually sent two of the women, including Ghislaine, to one of them in particular to pick up catalogues and things like that because at that time he'd actually been marked as an at-risk customer. So we've seen the logs from the association with all of his various aliases to say that no one was going to trade with him anymore. So he had a bit of a problem. So therefore that was when the women were sent in. It's a bit like Janet Oldenburg being sent in to the bookshop in Ballina to sell the stamps to make the money and he, he parked around the back even though he was very good friends with that business owner. Interesting. So he uses women. Yes. He uses women, even in a business sense, as a front, going down to coin fairs and bidding on items. He knows very well that women can be put up front, they'll do what they're told, and they'll get the job done. And most likely not be questioned. Yeah, especially in that world. And if I can say, like having delved quite extensively into the coin dealing world, both here and in Europe, we did months of work on that. And how this is very relevant to the conversation today is that I had to act as a male in order to infiltrate that world because they were not willing to communicate or discuss with a female about anything. As soon as I act as a male, then I get all the information and more. So I find that very interesting in 2021 that we're still in a situation where I have to be using my name but aliases in order to get information. You know, it's still there. Yeah, that's sexism, that's misogyny. Yeah. So for him to operate in that world, and I guess that's my point, for him to operate in that world, in my opinion, that would have suited him perfectly <laughs> because it, it is a world where women, in my opinion, are primarily not involved. Or are used and exploited just to do a transaction but not to be part of the network. And so all of that, it just reinforces to him that women are just there to be exploited and to be used. That's the micro and the macro for me because it exists and it is about inequality and how you exploit women or how someone like Mr. Rick Bloom does and gets away with it but uses them when he needs to. So it wasn't always about sexual relationships with women. It's also the other things that he could gain from using them and maybe Mm. making them feel useful, like they're in a business partnership, but he's just literally giving them single tasks or single jobs to do. You know, with Andre Flam, he, an older woman who he sort of almost had a grandmother, you know, grandson relationship with, and that was quite different, wasn't it, in terms of the setup, but him really making her feel that he was going to be helpful to her, stayed with her for 10 days in Belgium and values her coin collection, then he disappears and the coins disappear. 
Calling all lovers of mystery. Prepare to don your detective hat in June's Journey, a free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. Take a trip in time to the glitzy 20s and play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. The thrill is endless with new chapters added weekly, allowing you to not only enjoy the detective adventure, but also to personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Hey, lovely. What's your makeup go-to? What do you need to face the day? Now, for me, if I apply my eyeliner, my brilliant eye brightener, mascara and red lipstick, I feel ready to face anything. But I know every now and again, I need to zhuzh up my makeup and my amazing sponsor Thrive Cosmetics has a full line of makeup to refresh your everyday look. With clean skin loving ingredients, their foolproof products make it easy for any skill level to apply. Also, Thrive Cosmetics Bigger Than Beauty mission is amazing. For every product purchased, Thrive Cosmetics donates products and funds to help communities thrive. I love that Thrive Cosmetics supports domestic violence victims, breast cancer survivors, and women who are homeless. Now, if you want to wreck from me, you cannot go wrong with the Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara. Thrive Cosmetics Liquid Lash Extensions Mascara has a unique formula which creates tubes around each eyelash to lengthen them. And they use nourishing ingredients that support longer, stronger, and healthier looking lashes over time. Plus, it's super easy to remove and slides right off with warm water and doesn't leave smudges. So treat yourself or someone you love and help women thrive together. Refresh your everyday look with Thrive Cosmetics, luxury beauty that gives back. Right now, you can get an exclusive 10% off your first order at thrivecosmetics.com slash crimeanalyst. That's Thrive Cosmetics, C-A-U-S-E-M-E-T-I-C-S dot com slash crime analyst for 10% off your first order. Take a listen to Andre Flum's testimony as featured in the Lady Vanishes podcast, voiced by an actor. You'll also hear from Brian Seymour introducing her testimony, as well as what Rick Blum said about Andre Flum, which is instructive about him. The next witness is 92-year-old Andre Flume. She appears via video link from Portugal, where it is now 6 o'clock in the morning. She has a supporter with her, and only the top half of her face is visible on the screen. Once again, an interpreter is sitting in the witness stand in the court at Lismore. While it's early in the morning for Madame Flume, and she seems a little tired, it is clear that she has a sharp memory. The court heard that she had come to know a man from Australia named Frederick de Hedevery in May 2010. She had met him through her daughter and son-in-law Pierre, who back then worked at a Brussels library, which is where he first met Frederick de Hedevery. When Madame Flume heard that de Hedevery was looking for a place to stay, she agreed he could stay in a bedroom at her home, which he did from May the 10th to June the 4th, 2010. 
While it's the first time Andre Flume has given evidence in these proceedings, long-time listeners will likely find the name familiar. After her dealings with Mr De Hedivry, Madame Flume wrote a letter to the Queensland Governor. That letter is now on file at the State Archives and has been referred to throughout the inquest. It's dated July 26, 2010, not long after Madame Flume's interactions with Mr De Hedivry. In it, she claims that he stole her late husband's coin collection, worth €20,000, and that he's a liar, not to be trusted, and is wanted by Belgian police. And if you cast your mind back to Mr Bloom's appearance at the inquest in February 2022, or just re-listen to episode 33 of this podcast, you'll discover what Mr Bloom had to say about Andre Flume and her allegations when quizzed by Adam Castleton. First, Mr Bloom explained that he'd been invited by Madame Flume's daughter and son-in-law to look at some old coins that had belonged to her husband, who had recently passed away. Then, he got personal. In February 2022, Rick Bloom told the court that Andre Flume could not put two words together. She had Alzheimer's and dementia and sat in a wheelchair in her room all day. Mr Castledon put those assertions to Madame Flume directly. While Mr de Hedeveri was staying with you in 2010, were you confined to a wheelchair? No, not at all. While Frederick de Hedeveri stayed with you, did you need to use a wheelchair from time to time? No, no, never. At that time that he stayed with you, had you been diagnosed with Alzheimer's or dementia? Madame Flume chuckles at the suggestion. <laughs> no. No, never. Mr Cassidon continues. During the time that he stayed with you, were you able to put more than two words together? Madame Flume clearly finds that suggestion ridiculous and highly amusing. She laughs as she responds. <laughs> yes! She denies that doctors were coming to see her frequently while Mr De Hedivry was staying and claims he offered to value her husband's coin collection. What became of your husband's coin collection? I don't have it anymore. It was him who took it. How do you know that it was Frederick de Hedeveri that took it? He was viewing the coins, and I went out for an errand. And when I came back, everything was gone. When you say everything was gone, do you mean everything? No, the coin collection. Did Frederick ever say that he would send you money for the value of your coin collection? He didn't say anything. He just left with it. That's all. Did he leave a note or a message for you while you were out? He left a little piece of paper to say that he was leaving and would be back the next day. But I never saw him again. I think that that case is also, again, a very interesting case study because it, there does appear to be a line in the sand when Mr Rick Bloom appeared to start having the prostate issues and things like that. And I think probably it's my opinion that he may have trans sort of changed his his approach from being one of romantic relationship, you know, marriage material, and now we're moving across to, a, you know, a favourite son or a, you know, a favourite grandson and more of the helping, I'm going to help you to, to offload your coin. I mean, it turns out that Mrs Flum's husband, they were good friends for many years. He obviously knew that 
Mr. Flam had died. And so therefore he sort of knew that there was a coin collection there. And, you know, he was also, he would also hang out at the Belgian Royal Library. So he would spend a lot of time in there. And he even says that himself on the stand. So again, you're mixing in circles, highly intellectual people, people that have a yearning for knowledge. Andre Flum's son-in-law who ended up selling the coin collection on behalf of Miss Andre Flum, he actually met him at the library too. So there was years of friendship there within that whole exchange. And so, yeah, you sort of scratch your head to actually do that and to know that you're going to do that too. She went out to get, it was either Belgian sausage or prawns to come back to create his favourite meal his favourite traditional Belgian meal. This is according to Miss Andre Flam. So she goes out to the shops and she gets back to her home and she's locked out of her home holding a bag of prawns or a, or a bag of sausages. We don't know which one. And then he, he's gone in a puff of smoke and he leaves a note saying to meet them at like the brick and brack area of a shopping centre to sell the coin collection. So to me, he's by doing that, he's saying your collection's not worth very much money. You know, the fact that we're going to meet in two days' time and I'm going to sell it to like a pawnbroker or a brick and brack antique kind of guy. To me, I mean, there was gold in that coin collection. So it wasn't like it was something that was just going to be offloaded. And he coveted that and he brought it all the way back to Australia. And I find it amazing that in the court at the proceedings, he walks in there with an image of the envelope that he supposedly sent the coin collection back to Mrs. Flum 10 years ago, 12 years ago. And he's kept that evidence for all those years. And he's able to proffer that in the proceedings. So what, what was he trying to get ahead of? How much other evidence is there that he has possession of? Yeah, well, that tells you thinking it through. That tells you that there's thought to this. It's not just impulsive, opportunistic behaviour. We actually looked up all of the addresses because there is just so many changes of address. It's actually very hard to keep up. We actually looked up all of those addresses and provided images to police of what was inside those addresses at the time because they were for rent and they were advertised online. And so therefore, just to see, you know, if there was anything else within those images that we could locate items of others because of Mrs. Flum and what we had seen with him keeping that envelope, that was quite significant to me that he could front up with that 12, 13, 14 years later. Yes, that's somebody who is very strategic and knows that he may have to answer at some point, come into the proceedings with that. And that's, in his mind, his insurance policy. But it actually proves nothing other than that he is calculated and he is devious. That's what it says to me. I mean, he did not long after that. He stayed at a hotel in Sydney and he sold a large amount of valuable coins under his mother's name, the family name. Now, I don't know if they're the same coins, but it's an interesting transaction, isn't it? That not long after 
Miss Flum's coins disappear, then you have a selling of coins by Mr. Rick Bloom. There's an extensive record tracking system that is present within the coin dealing or numismatic community. So again, like we have been able to trace essentially his whole collection, his whole personal collection, also his library too, and a whole lot of other significant figurines um, and different bits and pieces that he's sold off at the time. Because again, a lot of coin dealers and traders, they remain anonymous. So we've had extensive conversations with some of the leading coin dealers here in Australia, and they do remain anonymous, but he chose to actually name his collection, the Coppinola Collection. So the fact Mr. Rick Bloom chose to name his collection has meant that we've been able to essentially track a large number of the transactions that he has done in the coin numismatic community, Mm, which has been very interesting. Yes, that's very helpful, isn't it? That his arrogance and need to put a family name on on his uh, coins has actually helped track his behaviour and his actions. And, and that, to me, again, just leaks of him wanting to be much more than what he is, using a, a family name in that way. And again, just the confidence and the arrogance that he can get away with these things. Well, it comes from being the person who has gotten away with it for so long. That's what that confidence and arrogance comes from. Well, each of the coins, and I get, I think you'd probably find this interesting too, is I managed to get my hands on when the last coins were listed. Normally there's just like a little receipt and perhaps an actual formal certificate of valuation that comes with each coin. But with him, he actually did like a fold-out sort of guillotined, big, scripted, elaborate, explanation of every single coin and he'd cut out, he'd photocopied and cut out bits of different catalogues from around the world. Half of it was in French, half of it was in English, very eloquently written. And he went through his whole family history from his grandfather, right through his mother, down to him and where he fits in. And this was with each and every coin And some of the catalogues had up to 80 listings of his coins. So he had to do that 80 times because it was all handwritten. And I just find that amazing that you can't provide just a certificate of authenticity and a receipt. No, there is this guillotined, handwritten, elaborate stuff that goes on because he doesn't have the certificates of authenticity, and he doesn't have the receipts. So therefore, he just simply creates them himself. You know what that says? For me, it says, don't look over here, look over here. You're trying to distract and deflect. Um, And it's a sleight of hand, isn't it? I haven't got the actual documents that are required, but here's my life history. And hopefully you'll be so engrossed in that you won't notice. That's right. Yes. And he has brought things back, you know, more of the treasure hunter type things too. So little brochures that he found in a ditch somewhere. So he's sold them in Australia. So I guess in in my opinion, it's things that he can pop into his pockets, small things that can be transported, which is where I find the whole coin dealing situation quite intriguing within his whole history of, of offending Yes, well, I I would imagine that's what he thinks is his legitimate sort of business and trading. 
and that gives him standing and it's something in a in a sense that he's proud of the attention to detail of taking the time to write those things out this is where he feels gratified and where he is really what he thinks showing himself in his greatest light to write something out you know 80 plus times of the same thing that takes time and commitment and it's obviously something he enjoyed doing I would imagine his favourite subject is me, myself and I talking about himself, albeit with different people. He has to be careful what he presents because when he's with women, he's presenting a certain chameleon-esque part to him. But I think his ability to obfuscate, which is what I heard at the coroner's inquest, you know, he thinks he's the smartest bear out there and... Yes, he is smart of sorts, but he's not that smart because this has all caught up with him, depending on where where you land. But it's like pulling a string of a jumper, isn't it? Where it's just unravelling, unravelling, unravelling if you ask the right questions. And he wasn't concerned about going after people that he was connected to. Thinking about Charlotte, who his cousin's widow, it didn't concern him that there was a family relationship and a tie. And again, that just talks to me about him and his belief in himself, that he can just do whatever he wants and be bold-faced about it and not fear any form of consequence, which is what he did with Charlotte. Well, she asked to be called Charlotte, didn't she, when it came to light through Seven News. I mean, now she has been identified, but it was really her son who persuaded her to come forward and and to explain what happened because her son felt that it was important. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. I want you to hear Charlotte's statement for yourself. This is from the Lady Vanishes podcast. First, you'll hear Alison Sandy explaining who Charlotte is, and then you'll hear her three-page statement. Take a listen to this. The statement, which the woman we refer to as Charlotte made to Belgian police on April the 10th, 2012, is also tendered to the court. We have a copy of it. The original is written in French, but there is another copy that has been translated to English. We can reveal that Charlotte was born in Tournai, Belgium, in 1951, which would make her 72 today. The statement is more than three pages long, but we've decided to include most of it other than some of the administrative sections. Here it is. I am aware of the brief communication of facts for which I will be heard, that being a complaint for a scam against my distant cousin, being Frederick David de Edeveri, alias Willie Waters, alias Willie Coppenol, 
alias Willie David Carpenter. Just so you know, we've removed the name of Charlotte's husband to protect her identity also. My husband passed away on the 11th of July 2011 in Tournai. He was a banker for most of his life and ended his career in 1999. For me, I'm a retiree and worked as an employee of the Library Royale de Bruxelles for 42 years. My husband and I received every year a card from a first cousin living in Australia. These cards were signed Willie, and my husband told me that he had a cousin called Willie Waters, who had been in the army in Brussels, in the cavalry in the 1960s. But without a doubt, he had committed actions that caused him to no longer be able to return to Belgium, the country which he left at the end of the 1960s. He moved to Australia in the mid-70s. I had only ever seen him once in 20 years in France, at the funeral of an aunt. Shortly after the death of my husband, the accused contacted me by telephone. He sent assorted cards and bit by bit, he started to contact me by telephone every week to give me news. As I had a wish to discover new horizons, He returned to Belgium on the 24th of February 2012. I went to meet him at the train station, off a train coming from London. He stayed with me during this period, and in the meantime we took a holiday in France. For the entire duration of his stay, he explained to me that he had a house in Australia on the Gold Coast. And he also owned a house in Bali, Indonesia. He offered for us to live together in which case he would loan me his property. Knowing that I wasn't short of money and that I owned real estate, he proposed that we invest in equal parts in the purchase of a property on the coast in Bali for us to live in, between two holidays to Europe. He estimated the purchase at about 200,000 euros and he proposed that I invest 100,000 euros and I accepted. We had decided to leave for Bali to finalize the project and Willie had reserved two plane tickets, return, leaving from Amsterdam destination, Bali. Our departure was scheduled for the 23rd of March 2012, and the return trip remained open. I was the one who went and paid and collected the tickets at the agency in Tournai. I paid with my visa card the amount of about 2,500 euros, plus an extra 300 euros for an upgrade to comfort class. The tickets were registered in my name and that of Willie David Coppernall. I remember the Australian passport of Willie was in the anime of Willie David Coppernall. I made a remark concerning his name and he told me that the name came from the names of both his parents. I didn't ask anything further. I found it surprising that the day of the trip, Willie left before me on the first train from Tournai to Brussels and then Amsterdam because he didn't want to run into anyone in Belgium. We found ourselves at the airport and had boarded for Bali to Singapore on a KLM plane. After we arrived in Bali, Willie drove me to a hotel in Seminyak. I asked Willie why we were not staying in his house in Bali but he responded that it was currently being rented out for a few weeks. During the following days, we just walked along the roads of Bali and did some shopping. 
Willie told me that he was waiting for a meeting with his businessman on the 29th of March, 2021. I must tell you that I had given the money I had in cash to Willie before he left. Looking back, with Willie wanting to arrive at the airport first and by himself, I ask myself now the question that he may have deposited my cash in a Dutch bank account because according to a Bali guide, it is very difficult to enter the country with that amount of cash because customs checking is very common. I had given him the sum of 100,000 euros in 500 and 200 euro notes, an amount that I withdrew in two lots. Willie told me that he was leaving for his business meeting, but he never came back to the hotel. I did not know where he was because he didn't want to tell me. And it wasn't until the 1st of April that I received a message at my hotel, Tamanai Cottage. I will give you this email where Willie explains in a few words that he took the money as compensation for an amount that he had loaned my husband in a previous investment deal. He spoke of a copy of a receipt that he sent to an address in Tournay. However, I never received the receipt. Curiously, Willie never spoke of this previous investment, nor did my husband, who was a man of integrity, the proof being his exemplary career that he had. I then understood that I had been scammed and abused by this individual, and with the help of my interpreter, I was able to get my return ticket and return to Belgium on Saturday the 7th of April. What surprised me was that, upon my return, I discovered that Willie has also taken my jewellery, which was in a box inside the office of my husband. I had, in particular, a ring of white gold set with 13 diamonds in a circle, a ring estimated at about 6,000 euros, assorted earrings in white gold, each set with a diamond, estimated value about 3,000 euros. I also had my engagement and wedding rings, a chevalier ring in yellow gold. I must add at this point that Willy also took a collection of Belgian stamps dating from 1972, as well as a collection of euro coins. All in all, I estimate the theft to be about 25,000 euros. Bit by bit, I rebuilt my spirits and came to the realization that I had no means of contacting Willy. I know that during this stay from the 24th of February to the 23rd of March, he made at least one phone call to Australia. In any case, that's what he told me. This phone call was made on my private number. As far as I know, Willie has no address in Belgium. But I think he still returns from time to time. Sometime before my husband's death, he spoke about problems Willie had with the law. The statement continues with Charlotte saying she could provide a recent photo of the accused as well as reservation documents for the Bali trip. And she supplies an email address from which he sent an email. She explains how Willie does not have a precise mode of communication and says that she gave him a SIM card with her old phone number and he had taken that with him. She had also tried to call the number he used in Australia in October 2011 a few months before his trip to Belgium. She'd left a voicemail message. The statement contains a description of Willie, otherwise known as Rick Blum. 
Willie was about 1 meter and 90 centimeters tall. He had a solid build and dressed in a cool style. He had white hair, brown eyes and no beard or moustache. He wore a very flat watch made of white gold. He was on medication for a prostate issue, but I took no notice of the brand. He spoke French with a very slight foreign accent. He spoke perfect English and also spoke Hungarian and German fluently. At my house, he was on the internet on my laptop. I'm happy to give you that for analysis. I must also tell you that he requested that I buy for him, but in my name, ancient Greek and Roman coins. He ordered by postal courier and they went to collect the coins. He gave me cash for the purchase, but I suppose now that that was part of the money that I had already given him, because he gave it to me the day before we left for Bali. The statement is dated April 10, 2012, and was taken at 4.15pm. I have nothing else to add. Yeah, she certainly has, again, another very interesting story to tell. So again, with her, you do have obviously that family connection, the trust. According to Charlotte, he actually phoned her multiple times. So he didn't actually attend the funeral of his cousin and fly there to do that, nor did he with his mother or his brother or his stepfather. He rang her, he offered support. He was, you know, cousin Willie from Australia. He was known as Willie to her. Then there was a bit of a suggestion about may I come and visit, let's go on a holiday to France, what do you think of Bali? And it all just went from there. So it starts out with him helping her, Cousin Willie. Yes. Coming along to help her. Yeah, Cousin Willie, yes, because he's a trusted family member. Like the family knew that he was a bit sort of nefarious. He had a bit of a bit of a past as well because the whole family knew. That was allegedly a bit of a shame on his mother within the whole family because they were quite an upstanding family back in the day. Yeah, so therefore Cousin Willie came back and offering support and she gave him a mobile phone and he was constantly on the laptop at her home and they went on a little dalliance into France, which is just across the border from her home, and they had a little holiday there. And then there was talk of investment and a business opportunity in Bali. So he had a big home in Bali, apparently, which was, you know, ocean views and multiple rooms, but they couldn't stay there because unfortunately that was being rented out at the time. So they had to stay in a hotel. So they went there and he had to go off to, you know, discuss the money and she had bought her money. And so that was, you know, nicely locked up in the safe. And according to him, her husband owed him money in the court. That was how he termed it, that he was deserving of that money. So off he goes to have his little business meeting and he suggests that she go down to the spa and get a few treatments done and also perhaps change her, get her hair done and change her hair colour. And it is reported within her statement that he actually went down with her and because her English wasn't as good as his, he was the one that actually asked the hairdresser to dye her hair blonde. And there is evidence of that, that can be seen, that treatment. And then he leaves and then she is left with a locked safe 
with all of her things inside. So her documents are in the safe. Yes. And he vanishes. And now she's got blonde hair in a country alien to her. Yes. So then the hotel receives an email from him giving the code for the safe. So therefore she's able to get in and get her things and with the assistance of someone who was French speaking, she was able to then leave and get home. But it does show that money coming through. So he did claim €50,000. He flew in via Perth this time, not via the east coast of Australia. He flew in on the other side of Australia. And then we have the robbery that unfortunately happened at the Pacific Fair Shopping Centre, which involved Rick Bloom's $50,000. So his version was that he was robbed and, yeah, do you want to explain that, that he's saying that the money was taken from him and he was robbed and therefore he didn't have it? Yes, yes. So when he first arrived back, he was living in Queensland at that time, he went along and he visited three or four different currency exchanges within the Pacific Fair Shopping Centre because he was shopping around for what, you know, what would be the best deal. And he was also asking whether he should do it in, can he do it in smaller currencies and just slowly exchange it, even though it was quite a large amount. So he said that he pulled up his car into the disability parking and out he gets with his plastic bag full of money and he goes over to go into the shopping centre and three Maori males came up and actually choked him out. He blacked out and when he woke up, he was minus $50,000 that was in the plastic bag at the time. So the police were called, they had a look at all the CCTV, they couldn't find anything, they went and visited his home, they couldn't find anything there and so it basically ended up being unable to be investigated because there was no evidence of this ever occurring according to the police documents. So yes, so he is apparently minus 50,000 euro. Now, do we know if he claimed that on insurance or, or was there any sort of... No, there was no link in regards to why why that even occurred. And I'm sure that there's so many theories on, on why he did that. Even winding back, even before they left. So he, Charlotte, couldn't understand why he left early. So like they were both flying out together from Amsterdam to fly to Bali together and he insisted on leaving in the morning. So he was leaving on a train to go to the airport earlier and then she was to arrive later that afternoon. So again, you have that distancing and what actually occurred within that day where they're separated before they actually flew to Bali And Charlotte does make the comment within her police statement that she wonders whether, you know, some of the funds were expended in Amsterdam prior to even leaving to go to Bali because it was very difficult to get cash currency into Bali at that time. That was within Charlotte's own police statement. Interesting. But he he claimed that her husband owed him money and that's in his mind, what he took the money for was that he was owed money, therefore it was his. He's kind of Darvo'd her, hasn't he? That 
he's flipped the script and she, she doesn't know any different. Her husband never said anything, but he's given an excuse and a reason for why he's nicked off with her money. Yeah. And it, I'm sure that for her, it is complicated. I'm sure that it was very difficult and hard for her to engage with Tom Riddell from the Luxembourger Word as well. That was very much at the encouragement of her son. And it was her son that said, you know, we really need to do this for the sake of the woman that is missing in Australia. And a lot of work was put in by by Tom and Yannick Lambert, who was the other journalist at the time, in order to even make that meeting happen. And they were very sensitive situation too, and they didn't photograph her from the front. You know, it was very delicately and professionally done. I mean, it's just so hard because you're taken out of your own environment. You feel like a, you know, fish out mm-hmm. of water and you're dependent on this person who you think you can trust and you're invested yes. in that. And then you feel so foolish and, and silly and the shame resides with you of that you trusted that person, but the pattern's just the same of the false promises. It doesn't matter whether Mm. he knows them or not. He's that confident in what he can do and just darvo and flip the script if there is a challenge. And then, of course, the vanishing and the changing names, the moving house. For someone who's just a furniture guy, Mm. you know, you don't need 38 aliases to sell furniture. It's very clear that he has an ability to change the MO up when he needs to, but he's always got a good enough answer yep. if if someone does challenge him. I saw that for myself yes. when he was giving evidence. He feels that he can pull the wool over your eyes or obfuscate to the point where you lose the will to live with things yes. that he can't remember, you know, at certain times when it suits him. But the post-offense behavior yes. I do yes. think is interesting. And, yeah. So very much there tends to be a move of house and also a name change as well, or a name change back. So at times he will change his name, something will occur, and then he'll change his name back. So there's a lot of backwards and forwards that goes on. And also at times he had different names in different states. So here in Australia, he was legally known as one name in New South Wales. And then just over the border, he was known as another name because He'd changed his name to different names in two different states. Well, I want to get into all of this, Joni. I know you've timelined him extensively in the name changes, and I want to go back to the beginning of talking about his criminal history because I think, as I always say, past behaviour dictates future behaviour, and we have to lay that, plant that flag because we're picking him up later on down his, uh, I'm going to call it offending career, because this is offending and uh, abusing women, even if we take Marion separately, Mm. the pattern is consistent. But I want to go back to the beginning, and I know you've spent a lot of time timelining him very extensively. I'm jumping in here to wrap the episode. I know that it's a tremendous amount of information to process. I also want to take a minute to pay tribute to all the women who came forward, and in particular, Ghislaine and Andre, two incredible 92-year-old women who stayed up and gave their evidence in the middle of the night. What they shared speaks volumes about Mr. Rick Bloom's treatment of women. And I say this often, but it's worth repeating. Past behaviour is the best predictor of future behaviour. And if there's no consequence or fear of consequence, a person will not change their behaviour. 
Next week, we get into Mr. Rick Bloom's behaviour and his timeline and so much more, and I guarantee you won't want to miss it. In the meantime, if you have any questions, let us know what they are on social media. Now, if you have information about Marion's case, go to the Facebook page Marion Barter Missing Person. Also, an ask from me. Please do amplify this series so more people discover it by taking two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen. Until next time, be curious, ask questions, and always trust your instinct. Here's my final thought and ask before the episode wraps. I really appreciate you listening to Crime Analyst. And if you like what I do, please take two minutes to leave a five-star review wherever you listen to me. It really helps others find me and my work, and it helps with the ratings too. Crime Analyst is written, produced and hosted by me, Laura Richards. Sound engineering by Jason Sheasley at Abridged Audio. Cover art and graphics by Chris Rowbottom at Syndicate and music by Kilrude.